chapter with these you don't have to write these down because we already did it and it's not gonna be up there long anyway but with these 23 guarantees there's probably more certainly there's more but these are just 23 guarantees that i pulled out of the last 46 verses that we talk about but it's funny that even after all 23 of these guarantees that i found uh, and again there's more even after all of those the immediate thing that matthew records next is an epic doubt. Not just a small one, but a big one. John actually himself becomes the one who doubts. And so many of those guarantees up there are about persecution. But immediately we have this living example of persecution and doubt. I mean, immediately after that. And today, you know, we're going to wrestle with this a little bit. I don't know if you guys have doubted. I mean, I have. I'll be honest with you. And, and it, I, I feel like if you're honest, you'll say, you'd have to confess the same, but I won't speak for you. But I mean like really doubt. Has it ever crossed your mind that this thing is all in your head? I mean, has it ever crossed your mind, even for a second, that, you know, maybe, I'm not saying atheists are right, but maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe you got, maybe you were just raised this way and it's all you've ever known and, uh, you know, if you travel to other countries, I can tell you right now, it'll put it on you. When you get into a context where there's millions of people that believe something totally different than what you do, you start wrestling with, how do I know I'm right? Do I know I'm right? Am I right? I mean, doubt, doubt starts to creep in. I love the way John Piper put this. I love it. He said, and I'm not quoting him, but he said, sometimes I doubt, but it doesn't stick. He said, it's like a, like a hook that goes in my mouth, but, but drifts back out. It doesn't, I don't bite down on it. And I, I love how he put it. He said, I may doubt for a minute, but then I'll randomly walk past a tree and see it and think that couldn't have just happened. And he said, I cannot not believe. And that is a quote. I love that. I cannot not believe. Jesus here, you'll see, he has this kind of weird response to doubt. In some cases, he comes after these people who doubt pretty harshly. And then in other cases, like today, I mean, with John, he issues John a compliment in a lot of ways. With Thomas, we'll get to later, but with Thomas, when Thomas doubts, who's most famous for it, what does he do to Thomas? Gives him, hey, shows him what he's looking for. Even invites him to come put touch it. I mean, basically straight up answers him. But then sometimes he's harsh. So how do you know when it's okay to doubt? When is it okay? When is it a sin? Or is it ever okay? Are there ever any circumstances where it might be okay to doubt? We're going to talk about that today. I'll tell you right up front. The key to answering that is, are you his child? That's the key. So before we even dive into it, I'll tell you right up front. The key to knowing when, if and when it's okay to doubt is... You gotta answer the first question, are you his child? Alright, look at verse 1, chapter 11, Matthew, we're gonna roll through it. He says, When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their, these Jewish cities. Verse 2, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, or the Messiah, Christ in, is the Greek word for Messiah, 
he sent word by his disciples and he said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, what, remember the word Messiah. I know literally means anointed one, but what does it mean? Just always think of one word. David was anointed what? King, right. So the word technically it's king. There is a Messiah that people were anticipating, yes, and he is that person. But in his simplest form, the word is king. So think of it that way. He says, when he heard all the deeds of the king, he said word to his disciples, are you the king who is to come? Are we supposed to be looking for another? Now, what's really incredible about that is, verse 32 of chapter 10, Jesus had just said, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I'll acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I'll deny before my Father in heaven. And now these disciples of John come up to Jesus before men. They don't deny him, but they're sure questioning him. Right after he said that, John's struggling here. Pretty bad. Why is John struggling? For one, he's in prison. He's about to have his head lobbed off. But why, why is he struggling? That's one reason. Why else? What's his problem? Why is he wondering? Is it, it's not really just about John. What else is the problem? I think so. What's making him uncertain? Jesus didn't come the way. He's the king. Why aren't people taking a knee, Jesus? If you're the king, why are they just calling you a prophet? Why are they just calling you a prophet? Why are they ignoring your miracles? Why aren't they following you? If you're the Messiah, why aren't these things happening? And then, yes, why am I in prison? (laughs) I was supposed to be the herald that proclaims the way. And why am I in prison? I'm sure that was part of it. But the big part, I think, is why aren't people listening to you? You know what I mean? If you're the one. That's a good question. We'll look at it as we go. Verse 4, Jesus answered them. The disciples who, of John who had come, which, by the way, I noted before, but don't miss that that means John was still making disciples, said, go and tell John what you hear preached and what you see, miracles. First of all, I love the model of evangelism here, by the way. Go tell what you hear, what you see. That's pretty good. Go tell what you hear, what you see. You're right. So he answers him. In a wild way, look at this what he says. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed, leopards, leopards, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Man, just look how he just threw that in there. By the way, the dead are raised up. Oh yeah, and that. You know what I mean? The poor have the good news preached to them. He's referencing In a lot of ways, he's referencing Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. I won't go to them, but they talk about the age of Messiah that's to come. Basically, just as you said, he's asked them, you know, when he hears about the deeds that he's doing, Jesus basically repeats the deeds that he's doing. Well, that would be frustrating. Like, I knew you were doing those. That wasn't my question. The question was, are you the one? And he just spits back exactly what he's doing and what he has preached. Look at verse six, too. He says, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me, which, by the way, means that his message is offensive. To some called himself God. That's pretty offensive to some. 
Isaiah, again, Isaiah 8 talks about him being a, a stumbling block to some or a rock of offense, literally it says, that the Messiah would be, and also a cornerstone for others. I love what Jesus is doing here, I think. I think Jesus is affirming the word first. He said, what you preached, what you have heard preached, and what you have seen. What you've heard and what you've seen. Miracles always follow the word. Jesus uses the word. Jesus uses the word here, that word of God, to provide a response to John. He didn't just say yes or no. He quoted the word back. He said, he said John, you know the scripture. Am I doing what scripture said I would do or am I not? That's, that's basically what he's saying. And it's amazing, by the way, that miracles are not ever enough. Don't you think if you saw the dead raised, you'd be no more questions? Well, John, John called him the Lamb of God. John knew he raised the dead and John's still standing here asking a question. Listen, it's only that, listen, it's only that miracles affirm scripture. It's only that miracles affirm scripture that prove who Jesus is. It's not just the miracles. Him doing miracles all day long would not prove who he was because the devil can do miracles, believe it or not. His doing miracles affirming scripture is what shows who he is. And that's exactly what he's talking about. There's a good principle of faith here, by the way. If you ever believe, if if your faith is ever based on it works, it's kind of like prayer. Same thing, I, I try to get out of the habit of saying prayer works. That's dangerous language too. I, I know what I mean by that. But same thing, if you ever find yourself believing or your faith based on it works, you're going to probably be disappointed somewhere along the way. You know, faith is about one simple thing, recognizing who Jesus is and affirming what Scripture says about him in your heart. That's pretty much it. You recognize who he is and you affirm what Scripture says about him in your heart. You know, if you're looking for faith to set you free from trouble, you're going to have trouble. And it's probably going to be your faith that's in trouble because what your faith is in is in your hope and desire and your ability to will it to happen if that's what you're after. You know what I'm saying? That's not the case. Don't forget that John is, his faith is not willed him out of prison. His faith got him in prison. His faith has not willed him out of the head being lobbed off. His faith has got him facing that. And now his faith is starting to stumble a little bit, a little bit. And I love it, man. I love it. Jesus does. Jesus says, John, you don't need an answer from me about whether I'm him or not. What you need is to know that I'm fulfilling Scripture. And if I'm fulfilling Scripture, I am, therefore, who I claim to be. That's exactly what he's saying. Look at verse 7. And they went away. And Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. So the disciples go back to report. Jesus turned to the crowd. He says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. Um, Regardless of the moment, John was not somebody whose faith blew around in the wind. He was loud and clear. He was loud and clear. His message wasn't wavering. He wasn't wavering. Regardless of what has just happened, Jesus turns to the crowd and says, you know what you saw in the wilderness. That man was shouting. That man's message wasn't blowing around like a reed. He wasn't twisted and turned. He was loud and clear. Verse 8. What did you go to see then? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. He wasn't profiting from his message. 
He wasn't being rewarded from his message. And even now he's in prison for his message. He wasn't profiting from it. He was doing it straight from truth. Verse 9. Well, what did you go to see? I feel like, and I might be wrong because I'm not reading the tone, but I feel like Jesus is probably a little bit angry at the moment. My my own personal opinion. Because for one, he knows John's hurting. And for two, he knows what's coming. But he says, a prophet? Yes. Period. If I stop right there, that's, yes, he's a prophet. 100%. Affirmed by God. Affirmed by God. Jesus himself. Alright? And he says, and I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Once again, what does it mean when he says it is written? Scripture. So once again, he quoted scripture to the disciples about who he was. Now he's quoting scripture to the people around about who John is. Look what he says. um, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That's Malachi 3, verse 1, I believe. And he's literally coming right out with scripture. And he says, verse 11, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's amazing words after John just publicly doubted him. It's amazing words that he would say that. However, he says, huh? Doesn't change who he is. Watch it says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So there's, wasn't the end of the story. And the context here is of prophets. And John is the only prophet, I think, in this context he's being referenced as the only prophet other than Jesus is pretty wild that in and of himself fulfilled scripture. I don't know another prophet. I I tried to think it through and I couldn't come up. Maybe Joshua, but I don't know if you'd call him a prophet. Where scripture anticipated or spoke of a coming person other than Jesus and somebody showed up to fulfill that role. And I think that's pretty stinking amazing. If that's the only one, that's true of John. He alone directly heralded the Messiah. He, He did. But look, the point is not how great John is. Why not? He's just a messenger. What does he say? The least and the greatest. What's he getting at there? Is he getting, if you're number one, you got to be the last? Or if you're the last, you get bumped to the first? What does he mean when he says that? What if you take the highest and you bring it to the lowest and you take the lowest and you bring it to the highest and then you take, but when the, when the lowest gets to the highest, you bring them back to the lowest. And when the highest gets to the lowest, you bring them back to the highest. And when the highest gets to the lowest, you bring it back to the lowest. What are you, what are you basically doing here? Leveling it out. He's saying that we're all equal in Christ, in, in his kingdom, we're all equal in the kingdom of heaven. We're all equal parts of his body. One person said it like this. Being in in Jesus is better than being in position. Even if it's the position of a prophet. Even if it's the position of a prophet, that's awesome. But being in Jesus is better. And in Jesus, we are all equal parts of one body. Him. That's what he's saying here. Verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. Um, It's kind of a strange phrase that... Some translate coming into violence or the kingdom of heaven is coming violently or even struggling. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. That's a pretty harsh statement. They all prophesied up until John. 
What was the turning point with John? Fulfillment of the prophecy. The Messiah is here. They're all, that should tell you that all prophets are pointing towards the Messiah in some way, shape, or form. They all are. Right up to John. And again, Jesus is identifying himself as that person because they all did it right up to him. He's the last one. Messiah had last Old Testament prophet for sure. And when I say Old Testament, you say, no, John's in the New Testament. Well, not when he was on the earth, he wasn't. When he was on the earth, Jesus was, this was still just happening. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets, you could say. Messiah's here. He's, he's arrived. The days of John until the coming of Jesus, that's a curious phrase too. All the prophets were persecuted. Jesus says that numerous times. But there's this acceleration of violence and resistance and pushback. And, you know, John's in prison right now, about to be beheaded because of his message. And from the moment John begins to speak and announce Jesus' arrival, the kingdom is facing increased evil from men and spirits. These Pharisees, these zealots, they're trying to take the kingdom of God right then, overthrow Rome. Even those who believe in Jesus, to some degree, some of them are trying to take the kingdom and make it happen. Remember, even before it's over, Peter draws a sword. They're all trying to kind of, in some way, force the kingdom in, and that's not the plan. And in reality, they end up killing John and killing Jesus. And spiritual forces are out of control. You will not see a higher concentration of demonic language than in the Gospels. It doesn't mean they're not involved now. It doesn't mean they're not heavily involved now. It's just, biblically speaking, there is a heightened presence of demonic language all throughout the Gospels while, while Christ is on the earth. Um, verse 14 says, and, and here's where it gets wild. And Matthew, I think, is unique in the way in the language here. If you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. So what Jesus did, according to Matthew, is he separated out something there. He said he is the messenger who is to proclaim, as Malachi said, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah, the prophet who is to come now. He says, let him who has ears hear. That language means there's some depth here. You've got to, you got to listen. You've got to think. You've got to study a little bit. Paul would use language like it's a mystery or the mystery of whatever. It's, it's kind of the same thing. He's saying this is not going to be something that the common individual is going to get. You're going to have to have some understanding. Listen. Think. Uh, I'm going to tell you what I think here, and I'll give you some commentaries to support it. When we did Revelation, I talked about it some. But this is some bizarre Line of thinking. The argument has always been that, as I grew up, that John was Elijah who came to proclaim the way. And I won't steal that from you. If that's what you think, that's okay. He definitely did proclaim the way. But based on this verse, you have to deal with some weird language. If you are willing, he is. I'm reading English, but the point's still clear. If you are willing, he is. That supposes that if you are not willing, he is not. If you're willing, he is Elijah who is to come. If you are not, then he's not. Now, I'm adding that, but it's supposed there. And he also says the phrase, who is to come. John is Elijah who is to come, not who was to come. If you were talking about Elijah came, I mean, excuse me, uh, John came and he was Elijah, you would say then John was Elijah who was to come. Not. It's almost like there's an offer on the table. You see what he's saying? If you are willing... 
The offer's out there. If you're willing, from this point, Jesus is saying, if you are willing, not from way back when, when John called him the Lamb of God. He's saying it from right now. If you are willing, he is Elijah who is to come. Well, what would determine if he is or he isn't? Jesus has offered them something as well. What's Jesus been offering them? All of the Jewish people. Salvation in a sense, but not straight out salvation. What's he been preaching? We call the gospel, but what's he been preaching? Because he hasn't died on a cross and rose from the dead. What's he been preaching? What's he been telling them to preach? Kingdom of God's at hand. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. Go proclaim the kingdom. That's what John's questioning. Aren't you the king? Where's the kingdom? Yep. That's what I'm going to say. It can go either way. Yeah. So that's why I say if you if you stay in the one camp, I'm not going to fight with you. But if you lean in the other camp, that's okay too. So it could be. Since you're willing, he is, and it could be, and if you're willing, he is. I think um, I lean that way because my, my belief is that Jesus is offering the kingdom, and if you accept the kingdom, you recognize that John is Elijah who was to come, and Jesus is the king. But what did they do to John, Jesus? Reject him. Completely rejected him as king, and I think in that sense they are thereby also rejecting John, in a sense. Let me, let me read a couple of things. Bible Knowledge Commentary says, Those leaders wanted a kingdom, but not the kind Jesus was offering, so they were resisting the message and attempting to establish their own rule. But John's message was true, and if the nation would accept it, and consequently accept Jesus, then John would fulfill the prophecies of Elijah. Only if they accepted the messages would John, the message, would John the Baptist be the Elijah who was to come. But, uh, excuse me, because the nation rejected the Messiah, Elijah's coming is still future. That doesn't mean that the message that John, John coming as the messenger was, but this complete fulfillment is not. Uh, Fruchtenbaum wrote, John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And when he was asked, are you Elijah? He outright answered, I am not. We already went over that. I don't know if we did or not, but John 121 is where it addresses it. They ask him, are you straight out? Ask him, are you Elijah? And he says, no. So either John had no idea who he was and Jesus was telling him after the fact, or perhaps that had not been yet decided. All right. That's another reason why I lean in the camp I do. But he answered, I am not. And it says, now this, if the Messiah had been accepted as the messianic king, and if the kingdom offer had been received, then John would have fulfilled Elijah's function, which was to restore all things. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. However, since the king and kingdom were rejected, John did not fulfill Elijah's function, and therefore Elijah will someday fulfill it. I know that's crazy. I get that. I'm not going to go all off into it too deeply in the moment. You can go back and listen to the Revelation study we did. We talked about it. There's two witnesses in the end. I do believe that one of those witnesses is the fulfillment of Elijah's coming. If you totally disagree, you think I'm wrong, I promise it's okay. I'm not going to fight about it. Before we go on, John's mission was not a failure. John's mission was not a failure. Um, because his mission, according to Jesus, was to prepare the way. Okay? Whether or not he is Elijah, from Dave's perspective, whether or not he is Elijah, 
is at this time of the we're reading is up to the people still. Are you going to accept the kingdom or not? But that he prepared the way was not in doubt. And I'll show you uh, one place for that. Look at Luke 7 really fast. Just one other place and we'll come right back. Luke 7. Just two quick verses. And mine's actually in parentheses, which is odd, but that's the English language. Verse 29 says, When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, listen, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So the people here, in essence, are prepared. Does that mean every single person was baptized by John? No. Just a general term for a majority, a large number, all the people, even the tax collectors. I love that's thrown in there. That's Matthew's, you know, this is Luke, but I halfway think maybe Luke was thinking about Matthew. I don't know. But even the tax collectors, too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. However, the very next verse, completing the same sentence, points out that the leaders who represented Israel... As a nation, did not. They rejected him. Verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, not talking about lawyers like you think of them, lawyers, those who handle the law of God, Sadducees, scribes, those folks, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John, him, or baptized by him. So the, the baptism of John had done what God called it to do and what Jesus is affirming he did. He was preparing the way for the people. But the nation's leaders are standing opposed to it because they haven't participated in John's baptism. Another note, too, is neither John nor Jesus' disciples saw two, coming, two comings of the Messiah. None of them did. And... To this day, that's a pretty staunch argument if you get discussing things with Jewish folks. There's only one coming of Messiah. There's not two. They don't, they don't see that the way that we understand Scripture. But it's clear that he came first for the redemption of sin and second to rule as king. To rule on earth as king anyway. There's clearly two stages, but they didn't see that. And so I get it where John's struggling here. And another thing. And this one's a mind blower, but it's just the truth. In God's sovereignty here, the offer is real. Jesus is not offering a kingdom that he doesn't prepare to give. The offer is real. John can or is, can be or is Elijah. Jesus can be king on earth and the kingdom can be there. He is a genuine offer. You know, well, what if he doesn't go to the cross then? What if he didn't go to the cross then? Well, here's where God's sovereignty gets wild. The offer is genuine. Because he said, if you are willing, if you accept it. But he knows full well they won't. And they didn't. And ironically, in not doing it, they fulfilled exactly what Scripture said they would do. Long before they did it. Wild. I know it hurts your head, but that's the way it is. Look at verse 16. Go back to Matthew 11. Look at verse 16. Jesus, keeping on this same train of thought here, dealing with John's question and his doubt and kind of identifying him to the people. And he says, you know, in, in John's a fulfillment of Scripture. He gave Scripture to the disciples of John to go back and affirm who he was. And then verse 16, he says, well, what do I say? 
What shall I compare this generation? Now, that's a little key phrase you can draw a line around to, this generation. This is the first time that he uses it. He's going to use it a fair amount, especially in Matthew. He's going to use it a fair amount. And depending on how you interpret that, that'll depend on how you look at a lot of things ahead in this book, particularly related to end times. I believe this is a result, this language is a result of what we've already read in nine, chapter 9, verse 34, when the leaders, religious leaders of the nation of Israel call him prince of demons. Instead of prince of princes, instead of king of kings, instead of from God, filled with the Holy Spirit, they call him prince of demons, filled with demons, from the devil, from hell. And now he says this phrase, this generation. All right, he says, it's like children, the generation. It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. It's almost slanderous language here, but the, the children that he's talking about, it is the generation, but he's speaking specifically of the leaders of the generation of Israel. They represent, they represent that generation. Those spiritual leaders represent that generation. He said, it's like they're, they're all out there and they're yelling to their playmates. And they're, this is almost like bully-like language or, or slanderous language. In verse 17, he says, we played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. The you here, I think he's getting that too, is perhaps him and John. Maybe others like him. Like, what is he getting at? If you look at it that way, the Pharisees, the spiritual religious leaders said, hey, we played a song, but you, Jesus, you didn't dance. You're going against the grain. You're not doing it our way. You're not doing it our way. John didn't do it your way either. Verse 18, for John came. I love this. He says, John came neither eating or drinking. John was a Nazarite. We already had the Nazarite vow. We've already talked about that. And they say he has a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And this is a common passage, by the way, especially in the groups that I hang out in that justify drinking. And assuming here that Jesus must have drank because he couldn't have been accused of it if he didn't do it. And the argument is that he's not abusing it. It's not an excess. They're claiming it was, but it wasn't. Um, that may be that may be true. That may very well be true. In fact, it probably is true. But it is irrelevant to the point of the message. It's not what is being talked about here whatsoever. The point is, they're rebelling against God on both ends. Whether you are the holy man who doesn't associate with sinners and doesn't drink any form of wine and and fast 24-7, or... Whether you have no problem with eating food and you hang out with the sinners who need, who need the hospital and you have a, you know, wine here and there or whatever, either way, we lose. Either way, you're rejecting God. Either way. It's not so much about drinking. It's about rejecting Him and they're rejecting the prophet because they reject the scripture and the one who proclaims it. That's what's really going on here. Look at verse 18. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. I like the way that's worded. It's not the other way around. Wisdom is evidenced by the deeds that come from that wisdom, not the other way around. 
again, as I said before, Scripture is affirmed by these miracles that Jesus is doing, not the other way around. Never look for deeds and then listen for wisdom. I guess that's what I'm saying. Don't look for miracles and then, and then, then listen for who's going to tell you the truth behind it. Jesus is proclaiming what Scripture had written a long time ago. Jesus is fulfilling what Scripture had written a long time ago with his miracles. If somebody comes to you first, shows you a miracle, and then starts trying to teach you something, listen, that's, that's all around us today. I feel like I get into this conversation too often, but I mean, you watch television, you know what I'm talking about. Miracle healers and all these guys that do these things, and they win the crowd with miracles or show or whatever, and then they begin to teach something. And most of what they teach, I'm not going not afraid to say it, it's heresy. You say, oh, they pick up the Bible. Well, a lot of people do. That means absolutely nothing. Anybody can pick up a Bible. Anybody can read a Bible. Anybody can even come up with some truth out of the Bible. Uh, quick side note, I ran into a guy last week. Um, I'll tell you more about it later if you want to know. I won't go into it all. But it was more than a man that we were dealing with. And if, if uh, guys were here, they would tell you. But... He outright said, I want to share the gospel. He said, Jesus died for our sins, came on the cross and died for our sins. And that's the gospel. And a couple of guys in the room were like, you know, amen, amen. Is that the gospel? Why not? There's no resurrection in that. It sounds real good. A lot of people died on crosses. Thousands of Jews died on crosses. Paul goes into detail on this. Without the resurrection, we're, we're wasting our time. You know what I mean? People can twist your brain real easy, and spirits can definitely do it. And wisdom is justified by her deeds. The wisdom is, not the other way. Cults are started that way. False religions are started that way. Re- Revelation thirteen thirteen says the beast will do it that way. No one knows the word... Satan had the guts to use Scripture to argue with the Word of God. We already talked about that. The beast that tells you in Revelation 13, I don't care who you think he is, he will have the ability to do miracles, to deceive nations, to deceive people. They won't be like just compelling speech. It will be miracles. If he can do them, he's going to win people over. The only way you're going to have a foundation is you've got to depend on... That's what Jesus didn't do, miracles, and then preach some new teaching. Jesus did miracles to affirm what Scripture had said forever ago, okay? But from this moment on, Jesus begins this language of addressing this generation and the consequences of rejecting him as a generation. And he'll continue that throughout his ministry. But look at verse 20, and let's finish up. We're doing pretty good. He says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. That's the key. Most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, then they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. I think about Nineveh when I read that. Maybe that's what he had in mind. Verse 22. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And this is heavy, right? This. And you, Capernaum. Like, he singled them out. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you're going to be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Keep in mind, by the way, when Jesus says 
they would have repented, he knows they would have. That's a pretty heavy statement. That's not just a general like we would say it. I mean, he knows they would have. He gets much harsher with his language about Capernaum. Why do you think that is? I mean, he did miracles in all these cities. His mightiest works were in all these cities. But why do you think he singled Capernaum out? He lived there. That was home. Peter was from there. Few disciples were from there. Peter's going to be the foundation upon which the church is built. In a, I mean, Jesus is the only foundation, but you know what I'm saying. Peter's confession will become that. Are they going to get a privilege for that? When they stand before heaven, are they going to get a privilege for that? That the Messiah chose their place as home? No chance. That's what he's saying. No chance. And this is really convicting, by the way. Very convicting. Because this means you could be really close. You can be really close. But if you don't know him and acknowledge him as king, you got the same destination as these pagan nations before. Sodom is your destination. No matter how close you feel like you are. I know the cliche. You come to church and you think you're saved. All, all that kind of stuff. I, it doesn't have to just be that. He lived with them. Besides them seeing all the miracles, he lived there. And again, my personal conviction, we already talked about this before. This is another debatable topic. And I actually differ from most of the people I typically use for commentary. Um, I actually differ with most of them on this. I don't think... This is a reference to levels in hell. A lot of people do. I, I just have a hard time with that. I really do. And I may be wrong, but I don't think that's what he's getting at. And I'll, I'll tell you why. I'm never just going to give you my opinion. I'll justify why I believe what I believe. Because he doesn't say it will be more tolerable in hell for you. He doesn't say it will be more tolerable in Hades. He doesn't say it will be more tolerable in the age to come. He doesn't say it will be more tolerable in any period of time. He says it'll be more tolerable when? On the day of judgment. On the day of judgment. A specific day. I think what he's getting at is these Jewish cities had in mind or or had the Messiah among them. He's doing miracles among them. Emmanuel, God is with us. He's there. He, he is God in their very presence, even living with them. And he is doing all these miracles with them and they see him day in and day out and they know him in these other Gentile cities. They didn't repent, but they didn't have him walking among them like these guys did. They actually had him walking there. And so when Sodom or Tyre and Sidon, when these Gentile cities stand in front of the throne and they see Jesus sitting there, they're going to know they're facing judgment. But they're going to be seeing Jesus in a lot of ways for the first time. But not these guys. Imagine the regret of facing judgment on judgment day and it's him the one that was living next door (laughs) you know the one that was doing all the miracles in your city claiming to be who he was and now you're standing in front of him to say shock is is really hardly even the word and i think that's more of what he's getting at that it will be him they're going to stand before and it's going to be much more tolerable for those who will face God's judgment without recognizing him than those who are going to see him and go, no, I saw you eye to eye and turn my back on you. And they had scripture besides everything else. He was fulfilling the scriptures that they had. Sodom didn't have scripture. Tyre and Sidon didn't have scripture. The Jews did. So they rejected him, his miracles, his presence, and his word. They had all of it. And I think that's going to be 
make it intolerable, comparatively speaking. I think that's what he's talking about on that day. Verse 25, Matthew 11, he says, at that time, so right then Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. Watch, watch the family. He's been real heavy here, but watch the family tone he turns to. Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone whom the Son, to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Awesome twist to Father, Son, children. Father, Father, Son. And Jesus even praying here publicly. I mean, when he says, I thank you, Father, he's... He's making a declaration, but he's also, it's a genuine one. He's also speaking to the Lord. And there's some difficult teaching here. I got that. Unfortunately, it's frustrating for a lot of people, but it should be comforting. It should be. Jesus is literally saying that the ones that recognize him didn't discover that by their own wisdom. I don't care how you feel about it. I'm telling you what the text says. They didn't discover it by their own wisdom. Capernaum, Corazon, Bethsaida, all of them, all of them had the scriptures and saw the miracles and completely fully rejected him. So what makes the difference? You have the scriptures. Maybe you've seen a miracle. I don't know. What makes the difference? The will of the Father. In this text, that's it. It's the will of the Father. The Holy Spirit is, yeah, the Holy Spirit is the active ingredient in, in conviction, but it's the will of the Father. I don't care how you feel about that. I'm just telling you that's what it says, what Jesus' own words say. He says the Father reveals the Son to who? Who He chooses. Who He chooses. And no one can see the Son unless the Father reveals Him. And no one can see the Father unless the Son reveals him. Why? Because the see the Son is to see the Father. Don't let this weigh you down, though. Think of it like family. Think of it like adoption. You're being adopted. This is not like, oh, you do your research, you do your study, you weigh out all the gods that are out there, you look through scripture, you see the signs, and once you've processed everything in your supreme intelligence, you've come to the conclusion that this one makes the most sense, therefore I shall go live in your house. It's not how it works. When you adopt this child, you seek the child, you find the child, you pay ridiculous amounts of money. You spend enormous amounts of time to bring that child into your home. And when that child comes into your home, that child has your name, your identity, and belongs to you. That's a beautiful thing. Don't let that wreck you. That is a beautiful thing. That's the thing that he's getting to. Now, don't listen. If, if it's too heavy, hold on. Don't miss the next words. Don't miss the next words. What does verse 28 say? Come to me all. This is that great tension that runs throughout all of Scripture. The one moment you sit there and think that God's just damning people to hell and he won't choose this one and he'll choose that one and he won't choose it. I can't. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. The next thing you see is all who want to come, come on. Come to me all. Who is Jesus inviting? All. Everybody. One little caveat. One little caveat to the all. All who are what? 
weary and heavy laden, burdened. The wise, you know, these wise people who are rolling and have it together, they're not burdened or heavy laden. They're not going to come if he did open the door. He's saying, come to me all. If you feel the weight, come. And particularly the context here he's talking about is the weight of like religiosity and law and requirements. And look what he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is a call to come to the Messiah. All, everybody, all, all, all. And it's a call to discipleship, to learn from him, to learn from him. Now, if you come to Jesus, you're going to realize one day the only reason you came to him is because he came to seek you. The father called you to him. You see the father because you know Jesus and, and, and you're going to realize that. But on this side of it, hey, anybody who wants to come on, all of you come and learn from me. You don't just get to come meet Jesus and say, hey, I'm saved now. We're good. That's not what he said. He said, come learn from me. Be a disciple. Don't think that he's giving you an opportunity to rest and chill out because what's the he says, come to me, I'll give you rest. And then what's the very next thing he says in verse 29? Take my yoke upon you. You know, a yoke is, you know, that thing that sits over animals. He says that it's rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. Your soul is struggling with, am I saved? Am I not saved? Am I done enough? Have I not done enough? These religious leaders are spitting all these rules and regulations out on them. The scriptures, what does scripture say? They didn't have a Bible to walk around with. Can I do this? Can I not do that? Their souls are just burdened down. What if I died today? What's going to happen? And they're just wasted. And he's saying he's giving you rest to that struggle. You can know you're his. You can know you're his. And that little thing I was just talking about that You come to him because the father came to get you. That's actually very comforting because that means you belong to him. If it was based on my wisdom, when I start doubting like John did, I might walk away. But if he came and adopted me, I can't walk away. I'm his. belong to him. That doesn't mean I don't doubt. That doesn't mean I don't struggle just like John did. But I am his child. That changes every single thing. And he gives you a burden, a yoke. In Judaism, a yoke sometimes is referred to as teaching. The law, the Torah, that's considered a yoke. And in fact, that's a heavy yoke that was put on the people, the law. Heaven's considered a yoke. Even the kingdom is considered a yoke in some teaching. And you know what it is. You basically put it over an animal, this plow in a field or this doing work, an ox or something like that. And even more frequently, they put them over two to yoke them together. And I think that's more of where he's going. The big point is that a yoke implies submission to authority. Somebody's driving the animal. Somebody, the yoke says, I submit, I'll serve. I submit, I'll serve. And in this sense, you're yoking yourself side by side with him. He's the one pulling, not you. And it's easy on your soul. Listen, it's easy on your soul, but it might be real hard on your flesh might be real hard on your flesh. In fact, for John, it got his flesh beheaded. What's it going to get Jesus? Nailed to a cross. What's it going to get you? Well, it'll get you salvation. It'll get your soul salvation. What's it going to get your flesh? Nailed to a cross. 
Jesus' own words. Dead. What's it going to cost to be yoked to him? It's rest for your soul, but it's something totally different. Last night or night before I saw this screening for Voice of the Martyrs, Torture for Christ. If you follow me on social media, you saw me post it. But it, I know that story. I taught, I taught for VOM for a while, years and years ago. And that's one reason why I still have the stuff back there. And it, I know that story so well. But it destroyed me to see it. It's so well made. When it comes out, you have to see it. But it's hard to believe that the tortures and the horrible things that occurred to him were in the 50s and the 60s. They weren't that long ago. And before you think, well, good thing they don't happen now. If you've already forgotten about ISIS, you know, and the horrible things that they did to believers. This is the world. It's always been and it will be till he reigns on this earth. And I'm more aware after seeing that, I think, than I have been in a while about what it means that Satan is a lion seeking sheep. Don't be surprised if you follow him that these things come. And don't be surprised if you find yourself doubting. Doubting. But I would say it's okay for children to doubt. Enemies, that's a whole other story. But it's okay for children. That's how you learn. If you're sincerely seeking answers and you sincerely want to know, you're asking questions and you're doubting and you're wanting, you want an affirmation of what you believe. If you are not a child, you're wanting to justify what you don't believe. Or unbelief, they call it. You're not doubting, you unbelieve. You're wanting, you're wanting to find reasons to continue to reject it. So, I would leave you with this as we go out of here. There's a great book, by the way, if you want to read it. It's pretty, it's pretty uh, academic, but I love it. I've read it a few times. It's called God in the Dark, and it's by Oz Guinness. And it's on this very thing, the difference between doubt and unbelief. But I'll tell you this. Doubting can be healthy if you are a child, but you just don't stay there. And just always remember, I, I love the way that John Piper put it. I just, I cannot... Not believe. Even when I doubt, I can't stay there. I can't stay there. Even if I have to just believe without having an answer, that's where I've got to sit. You know what I mean? That's the difference. All right, let me pray and let's bolt out of here.